Hooked on Health, a Go Loud original. You're very welcome along to this Go Loud original podcast, Hooked on Health. It's where we discuss all aspects of health, fitness, well-being and coping with those curveballs which life inevitably throws your way. I'm Willow Callahan from Off The Ball, producer of the pod, which will be available each week on the Go Loud app and wherever else you get your podcast from. Our host needs little introduction really, but I'll give you the tale of the tape anyway. He's a five-time Irish amateur boxing champion, a bronze medalist at both European and EU championships. He's the reigning and defending Irish professional featherweight champion, and he's aiming to become the European super featherweight champion this year. The host of Hooked on Health is Lily White Lightning himself, Eric Donovan. Eric, how are you getting on? I'm doing very well, Will. Thanks very much for having me. Eric, I've given your boxing pedigree there. It's the first time you've ever stepped through the ropes as a podcaster, though. We've kind of been planning this project now for a few weeks, and each week you're going to be sitting down with a guest from all walks of life. You're going to be discussing their stories, sharing a bit about your stories along the way, too. And look, I'd imagine after years of you being the subject in interviews, this is going to be quite a different departure for you being the person asking the questions. Yeah, it's an exciting project, Will. I mean, um, you know, when it, when, it, when it was first proposed to me, I, you know, I, I thought, wow, you know, this is a great opportunity, but um, it's much easier for me on the other side of the questions, you know, when I'm answering them and I've been used to them most of my life. But, you know, when I'm actually asking them, now it's a whole different ball game. But the fact that I got to choose uh, my own guests as well, you know, that made, you know, made it even more exciting. And uh, the kind of guests that I'm looking to speak to are, you know, people who have, experience around you know mental health adversity you know dealing with setbacks addictions and you know depression anxiety and you know because it's a huge area at the moment you know it's a it's a huge problem at the moment in Ireland in, in Ireland but not only in Ireland across the whole globe you know um, and I want to speak to people in particular who have struggled um, and who have failed you know, and have faced setbacks yeah, because it's okay to struggle. It's okay to fail. It's okay to face setbacks and rejection and that it's still possible to turn it all around, even in the midst of all of that and be happy and be successful. And there, you know, that's the kind of guests I want to speak to people who will offer hope and inspiration to the listeners. Yeah, and look, there's a lot more about you than what you've just achieved in the ring. You've battled your own demons in life, particularly alcohol addiction. You sought help almost 10 years ago and have recovered and got out the other side. For people who don't know much about your life outside of sport, tell us a bit, Eric, about what Eric Donovan is like when the gloves are off. Well, my story is a bit of a redemption story. Um, from the age of 13, I started smoking and it wasn't long after then, well, I started smoking cigarettes. It wasn't long after before I started drinking and and then you know, smoking hash or marijuana. Um, and then by the age of 14, 15, I moved on to class A drugs. And from the age of 14, I was probably in the early stages of addiction and, you know, I was in full-blown addiction right up until the age of 26. And, uh, you know, it was it was difficult. It was very, very difficult. But what made it even more remarkable that in, in that time I was representing Ireland and boxing at a very high level and winning and succeeding on a very high level, which kind of in some ways 
acted as a kind of a, a mask in a way to my addiction. It almost gave me a little bit of respite every now and then. I'd go through periods in my life where I'd get six weeks or eight weeks clean and sober and do really well and be on the straight and narrow. And maybe I could be in a training camp or surrounded by a, a high-class professional environment where um, the supports around me by psychologists, uh, nutritionists, coaches, teammates, everything. And then, of course, when I came back out of that environment, whether you know back home, I, uh, back into my home environment, home community or whatever, I was kind of just going back into a very vicious, unhealthy, toxic kind of circle again. And it'd be like, uh, here we go again, you know. Um, but look, thankfully for me in 26, it kind of came to head and I, I asked, put out the hand and asked for help. I needed help. I really, really needed help badly. And um, for all of my career, I was struggling and suffering in silence. I wouldn't talk to people because I was afraid. I was afraid of the shame, the embarrassment and, and you know, I was afraid of rejection, I suppose, um, and what people may think of me. And, you know, but I had to I had to deal with all of that. I had to muster up the courage and the strength to ask for help because it just was not possible to keep continuing on that journey on that in that fashion. And um, if I didn't ask for help, you know, I probably wouldn't be here today. I, I know not not probably I wouldn't be here today. And that's a fact. Um but that's only the start. Reaching out and asking for help is only the start. You know, you kind of have to go through the whole process then of resurrecting your life and uh, reinventing yourself. And But it is possible. It's not easy. It, definitely not easy, but it's definitely possible. And there is many supports out there if you want it bad enough. And um, sure, I, I retired from boxing at 27 you know 27 years of age going on 28 I retired and I achieved an awful lot and I went back into education and during, I retired for three years and during that time I pondered back down memory lane and uh, thought about the, the kind of habits and behaviors that I got up to and well I got emotional on many many occasions because of the the what I left behind me, I believed I left an Olympic Games behind me. I left probably a world championship medal, you know, probably left another European medal, I probably left a few senior titles, senior other titles. And I just started thinking about all the, all the, the losses, the, the regrets, basically, and, and got really down about this for a long time. And then I was approaching my 31st birthday and I got it into my head and it was like, Eric, you're doing nothing only talking about this and wallowing in self-pity why don't you do something about it you know and that was it I kind of said yeah I'm still young enough I'm 30 yeah I'm, I'm no spring chicken but well I live a good life a healthy life I'm uh, you know I have a new mindset I have new tools for living um, and I learned them through counseling through, through therapy the realization that you know what redemption let's do this you know let's finish it out yeah you, you, you weren't you know you, you, you went down the bad the bad road and you made so many mistakes but why not make amends why not rectify it and go back and close the finish the the close the, the finish the closing chapters in your book in your way well in terms of those chapters which are already written and sitting in ink you're 23 years of age you're in the middle of the darkest points of your addiction you beat the reigning world champion on your way to winning a european medal like how is it possible for you to perform at such a high level in such a competitive sport while you're also in such a rough place in your own life at the same time. 
Yeah, it was so difficult. Like, really was so difficult. Um, I suppose what helped me was the youth. They say the youth is wasted on the young. I was just so young, talented, and maybe had great recovering ability, you know, that three days in the gym, I'd feel myself getting very, very well again. Very, very well. You know, as soon as I get those endorphins going and get the sweat going, get the juices flowing, take a few punches, give a few punches, lift a few weights, hit a few pads, and I'm back in that high performance unit and that high performance environment. I adapt very quickly to my surroundings. That's the thing. And I could be in state-of-the-art stadiums, five-star hotels, whatever, like, and, and loving it and feeling very, very much at home and comfortable. But the sad part is that I always had to go out of that environment again at some point and go back into whatever, uh, you know, back home. And, uh, and, and that's where I, um, that's where I struggled, you know, because I didn't know any different. And I like, if you could lock me in the boxing club or lock, lock me in the high performance gym, I would have been fine. Uh, but I had to go back to reality every now and then. And uh, that's, the kind of the habits and the, the, my lifestyle, my social lifestyle choices were not compatible uh, or conducive to uh, professional athletes. And that's where I suffered. You hung up the gloves and retired at 27 years of age. You came back out of retirement three years later. You're on this journey now to hopefully becoming European champion this summer. You've got a focus on still trying to achieve a lot in those final years of your career. But it sounds to me, at least, that you're a very different person now than what you were like in your 20s and when you made that decision to retire. Like, I heard you recently say that you're no longer defined in your own mind by just being a boxer and the result of different fights. There's now a lot more to your own self-worth, which goes beyond those results and what happens within the ring. The outcome of a match, like, would determine everything, my credibility, my my well-being, my happiness. But no, like, today I realise that, you know, there's much more to me, much more to Eric as a human being. And I discovered that. I discovered that through the journey of recovery and through taking risks and to... Um, to find it out, to be, to remain in, to remain open-minded, and to be teachable, and to allow people to teach you, and to be, you know, there's a great personality trait that I think is one of the best ever is humility. To be able to look and see that your way maybe isn't the best way, you know, that other people's way might be better, you know, and I, I was able to kind of look to other people for direction. And people who have been in my position before, people who have the experience, people who could, who could identify with me, and I could learn from them. And that was it, you know, and they, they, they guided me along. And, um, and thankfully, yeah, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not consumed by it anymore. But like boxing is definitely something I'm really good at. And it would be sad to retire, not ever know what you could have done or what you could have been, because, you know, we hear it time and time again, and I hear it in my hometown of Atai and, and many other towns, I'm sure, are the same as well. Like, and it, like the amount of people that I've heard of who are amazing footballers, amazing soccer players, could have went and played with Manchester United, could have played, could have captained Kildare, could have been a world champion, a boxing champion, whatever. But the drink got the better of them or the drugs or they lost their way in life, you know, and I don't want to be another statistic. I just don't want to be another st- statistic. Um. I want to be the person who actually did change it, did get back behind the wheel and turn it around and say, no, I, you know, let's, we're going the wrong direction here, Eric. We're going, we're going down on a downhill spiral, you know, and you need to kind of do a U-turn very, very quickly, or you're going to be in big trouble. 
and uh, and that's what I done. And I want to prove to anybody else that's out there struggling, suffering in silence that if I can do it, they can do it too, one hundred percent. And is that why you're doing so many talks in schools in recent years with young people? Because I suppose like you've overcome those obstacles yourself, and maybe the intention will be to try and provide a role model and a better pathway for them. Is that your motivation in terms of engaging with those young people and that next generation who are coming through? There's a couple of reasons why I go, actually. Number one is so to remember, to remember my where I was, you know, that I don't ever lose of where I was and, you know, where I was slipping to. Um, because if I do, you know, God knows, God knows what could happen. I wouldn't like to, I wouldn't like to find out. That's that's the first thing. So it's almost like I take out a bit of insurance on my I, by going and speaking, reminding myself of the distance I've traveled, but also reminding myself of the past and what how bad it was. And uh, number two is to help others. You know that there is a lot of people out there suffering in silence, and and you know this is the truth. This is facts. This is complete another facts here that I'm speaking. Uh, a lot of people in a crisis, especially youngsters, growing up in today's day, like. I'm very lucky that I got to experience some sort of a childhood away from the technology. And I try to inspire the kids to, you know, to be able to never know, you know, someone could be just listening. You might plant a seed with somebody. And I know I do because I get a lot of private messages afterwards, you know, and my life story is not unusual. It's very common, very, very common. What's unusual is speaking about it. You know, that's what's unusual. We don't get many uh, many people talking about it and uh, but I do and the reason I do it is because I know that it's a common story and I want to try and give people the support out there and give them the help and me as a boxer and a champion and I have that mindset a winning mindset when it comes to addiction there's no fairy tale ending how many times do we hear the message in life never give up never quit you know don't, come on you can do it don't back down but when it comes to addiction you will never, ever, ever beat your addiction by staying in addiction. You have to surrender to win. You throw in the towel with your addiction and then you watch your life getting better and better and better. Well, it brings us around very nicely to your first guest here on Hooked on Health. When we embarked on this Goal Out original series, we were firing the text back and forth with ideas about people you'd want to speak to. And I'm delighted we were able to get your first choice to be able to kick things off because I think there's a lot of common ground between both of you. He's a high-performing athlete, a winner of All-Stars, as well as an All-Ireland medal winner at club and county level, while also someone who spoke out about his own battles with gambling addiction and has gone on to help many people over the last 20 years or so, and particularly in his retirement. It is former Armagh and cross McGlen footballer Oisín McConville. Eric, I remember when Oisín went public on his own struggles with gambling, I think he was very brave to do so because... It's difficult to let your guard down when you're in a kind of a macho environment, when you're in a team sport, and to show that vulnerability, particularly when you're a high-profile sports person. Because you were talking about those children seeing a bit of your story in them when you spoke to them in the schools. I think there's a lot of similarities between you and Oshin. Yeah, there's huge, huge common ground, a lot of identification with Oshin and um, been lucky enough to, to know Oshin, you know, and consider him a, f- a friend. And if I ever need a bit of help or advice, you know, you know, he could touch base with him and he's always there. He's always available and he does tremendous work, you know, as, in his own community and but also around the country. And the impact that that him speaking out like that one sole act of speaking out has 
a ripple effect that rips right through the whole country. All-star winner. He had a huge profile. And the, the goodness, the goodness, the, the positive impact of him speaking out uh, is still being felt today. It's still being felt. And the work that he's doing, I'm no, no surprise that he's a therapist now as well because he has so much to offer. And um, I love bumping into him along the road. We'd, we'd often meet at different events or we often share different sports sports media platforms or whatever and uh, panels uh, and discussions. And, you know, I always, anytime I speak to him, I always come away with a nugget or two, um, you know, uh, and uh, another, a little bit wiser, I suppose. You're listening at the moment to episode one of Hooked on Health with Eric Donovan. Here's what happened when Eric sat down with former All-Star forward, All-Ireland winner with both Armagh and with Cross McGlenn, Oshie McConville. It gives me great pleasure to introduce my very first guest. He's a 2002 All-Ireland winner with Armagh, a six-times All-Ireland Club Championship winner with Cross McGlenn. He's got two All-Stars to his name. He's a very highly regarded addiction counsellor and therapist doing tremendous work around the area of addiction and mental health in this country. Oshin McConville, thanks for joining us. How are you keeping? I'm good, Eric. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, so delighted to have you on the show, Oshin. And just to start... What's life been like for you over the last year with the whole lockdown and the pandemic? And I mean, how has it impacted you? Yeah, look, the lockdown thing was something that uh, last March I really embraced because I spent I spend the majority of my time on the road. Uh, a lot of my work takes me to, to England. So six, seven, eight days a month over there. Uh, a lot of travel. Obviously, I'm involved in coaching. Uh, then there's coaching the kids and that. So there wasn't a lot of time uh, left to spend at home. And I suppose when, when lockdown came, I embraced it. And we, it gave me the opportunity to do things that I suppose like uh, I, didn't ha- I, I hadn't had with the kids. I, hadn't had a, I felt as if I hadn't had enough time with them. But uh, needs just, that's just the way it was. Needs most of the time. My wife was at home all the time, and and I suppose I was I was the one who was who was out and about. So that changed things dramatically for me. Uh, but I embraced it. I actually would say that you know I enjoyed uh, definitely the first part of lockdown. The weather was good. We were getting out and about. You know we had you know the routine sort of changed. No school was you know we hadn't really done a whole lot of homeschooling either. Uh, that time around, but uh, to be honest, just embraced it as much as I could, and 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 I suppose over time that has changed a little bit. I think people in general, but uh, if, we, if we're just talking about me and and the home on the home life, we, we got a little bit fatigued by it, and uh, we sort of tried to continue to reinvent ourselves and do different things, and and the winter doesn't really allow a lot of that, you know, outdoorsy stuff, so trying to think of as much as to do and trying to survive it as best we can. But I would say that uh, I would be one of the lucky ones because I'm in a home where, uh, look, the kids are good. They're lunatics, but they're good. Um, but uh, it's a loving home and it's it's somewhere where I enjoy being. So, I mean, I think we could take a little bit of a mix. I, I, I actually... I've been out of town a couple of times. Last Friday, I had to go to do a little thing for the All-Stars up in Dublin, up to RTE, and I just sat in the car 
I listened to a bit of music and it was, I have to say it was lovely. And my wife was uh, earlier, early on, earlier on the week had to go to Belfast for a, for an appointment and she came home and said the exact same thing. Just it was a couple of hours in the car. And, and to be honest, the car was somewhere where I was getting really fed up of because I was spending a lot of time in it. But look, as I say, I, I would consider myself quite lucky with, with the way things have gone. Well, it's funny you say that because like, I'm one of the lucky ones as well and being an elite athlete, a professional boxer, I get to get outside the the restrictions uh, and go to the gym and train uh, with my coach. So um, I never would have thought a car journey would uh, feel so good. And, and at times I don't even want to get out of the car when I come home either. It's, uh, it's just one of those things. But um, look, I mean, the general consensus last year was that, you know, everybody really embraced the first lockdown and almost enjoyed it like it was almost a, a, an opportunity for people to regroup and recharge but you know here we are a whole full year later and you know even the most resilient of people are being tested now um and i'm just wondering because i know you have a small family as well and you know with the wife at home and all i'm just wondering what kind of coping mechanisms or strategies are you using to get through it with the homeschooling and everything uh i well i suppose the things we do we we it's it's basically military precision here in the mornings. The kids get up. We all have breakfast, and we start into the to the homeschool, and, and we try as best we can to be done and dusted by twelve, half twelve in the day, and, and that sort of freezes up. We normally walk, uh, then so we're getting out there and we're doing a little bit of exercise. If uh, time doesn't allow that, then we will. Um, We'll sit down and we play a game together or whatever. Uh, we try as best we can, I suppose, to uh, eat dinner together, sit around the table, have a bit of a chat, be in no mad panic to get up from it, uh, and and generally then let people off to do their own thing for an hour or two in the in the afternoon or the evening. And uh, that's sort of the way we've coped. Uh, I'll be honest with you. Um, I would feel as if uh, mentally I, I would be on top of things uh, as part of my work. You know, I get supervision. Uh, I actually have increased it maybe once every two weeks, once every three weeks. So basically supervision is basically, you know, speaking to another counsellor, talking about the things that you have encountered yourself uh, through the counselling you're doing or the, the speaking to people that you're doing. And, uh, and I, I would have thought that I was keeping myself really well, but... About two weeks ago, I I, I just felt st- some stuff bubbling up inside me. and uh, I think a lot of it was around looking at the kids and seeing how they were starting to, to struggle, uh, how they had no school and no sport, uh, no major outlet, not seeing friends. And, and anger was building up inside me because, you know, I was at anger towards politicians and scientists and <laughs> everybody. And, uh, and I felt it and I, c- I kept it with myself for maybe 24, 48 hours. And then I, I just, I said, what, what am I doing? Because just, you just, you're trying to recalibrate again. And I, I said, what am I doing? And I just, I voiced it. I just let it out. And I said to, I said to my wife, listen, I'm, I'm really struggling with, you know, as regards, you know, what's going on with the kids and different things. And it's building up a little bit of anger inside me. And uh, um, honestly, once I, had, once I had voiced it, once I had let it out, 
uh, things immediately became more clear for me. And, you know, I obviously I, I have the support. I know that. But things instantly became more clear for me. And uh, and then I'm able to to sort of recalibrate and get on myself. But that was frightening for me because I suppose, as I say, I would feel as if, you know, I'm I've, I'm on top of the, these things and all that. And yes. And so I, I do fear for people out there who maybe, you know, who are, are letting this stuff slay, bottling it up. I mean, you know, I, I don't know whether you want to go into it or, or not, Eric, but my issues originally, uh, sorry, originated from the fact that I had serious insecurities when I was, when I was a younger lad and I internalized them, bottled them up, didn't talk about them. And that's what got me into the to the to the trouble that I was in. So uh, you know, so people doing that, you know, on, on a continuous basis over a long period of time, uh, and it's more magnified now by the fact that you know we are in a, a situation that we've never been in before, a strange situation, not a lot of uh, as I say of outlet, especially socially. And uh, so I would fear for people out there because I do think that that's genuinely an issue for people now. Oh yeah, I agree with you. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people in the same boat, but um, it's almost refreshing to hear you uh, speak like that and share and be so honest. Um, because let's face it, you're a therapist, and people may um, have this kind of idea that you have everything, all your ducks in a row, and you're on top of things. And but you know, from sharing, you're a human being as well, you know, and just from sharing that simple little experience a home in the house feel anger building up you know that you know the act of communication just and and almost like communicating it to your wife took the sting out of it for you so um many people may not realize the power or the benefits of actually just speaking about what's going on under the surface on an emotional level so can you tell us a little bit more about that the whole thing about about bottling stuff up and it's, I used to I when I first started to talk about this I start, even better again start to learn about it when I was when I was having my own struggles the way it was explained to me uh, by the therapist that I had was a snowball rolling down the hill just getting bigger and bigger and when I internalize stuff I can make the smallest little thing into the into a very large problem. But if I'm able to share that early, that snowball doesn't have a chance to, to roll down the hill. It's, it's, it's picked up and it's thrown away. And, and so that's the way I, I think of, of these things in my head. And w- when people have that knot in their stomach, you know, you're talking, you already asked me just about coping mechanisms. I mean, I know when I'm on a spiral that I, I'm not happy with. I know when I'm on a spiral where... Uh, things aren't going great for me. And I also know how to turn that around. So for me, exercise is important. And I'm not doing triathlons. You know what I mean? When I talk about exercise, I mean, if I get out for 45 minute run, jog, walk, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm probably over-egging it when I say run. It's more an amble at this stage. But uh, when I get outside for a run or a jog or a walk, um, when I'm eating properly and when I am uh, communicating in a way that, that I should. And when, when people think about 
well, I wouldn't know how to say that to, to some other person. Don't spend all of your time thinking about how would I say it. You know, think about it as in, I'm going to say it. I'm going to blurt it out. I'm going to let it out. I'm going to, you know, I'm, and as I say, once that uh, is shared, um, it's never the same again. That was my major problem for 16 years when I gambled was that I didn't, uh, I was unable to share and uh, my problems kept, kept getting bigger and bigger. And uh, once I started to, to let it out and the first time I shared it, uh, things started to get better for me immediately. Things didn't start to get better for me, uh, you know, with the, uh, you know, in seconds or minutes or anything like that there. But I started the process and therefore when I started the process, I was able to, to continue that on with help you know, with proper help. Yeah, so it was a bit of like a process for you, a journey almost, you know, it didn't happen overnight. And uh, But do you think we're kind of fixated on that, like, you know, wanting things instantly, wanting instant results, wanting things now, basically. Like, I mean, we've got so much, you know, things on demand now, TV on demand, you know, Wi-Fi, you know, instant coffee, drive through. everything is just, you know, now, quicker the better. But I suppose just one thing, that you can't rush and that's you know when you need a bit of emotional first aid going through emotional conflict or turmoil or mental health issues it, it's a process that you cannot be rushed would you agree oh absolutely i mean as i say the first thing is to just share it with another human being what your struggles are how big how small how small they are that doesn't really matter and then just how i suppose having the ability to uh, continue that process and when I talk about that process like for example that process for me meant that I ended up in a treatment centre mm. okay I spent 13 weeks in a treatment centre in Galway and I started to learn about what was going on with me and I was able to continue that with first of all a therapist but then with a group of people like in Gamblers Anonymous I mean people know about Alcoholics Anonymous Gamblers Anonymous Narcotics Anonymous for some people, it won't be that same process mm. because some people, a lot of people won't be in the same uh, category as that. But whether it be financial, whether it be a uh, struggle at home with the kids, but even for, like, is it okay to, to, to have a bit of a, str- a struggle, you know, trying to cope with, with three kids over over 12 months, everybody's stuck in the one house? <laughs> I think that's probably the most natural thing in the world. But absolutely. Like like a lot of people put themselves under undue pressure. Mm. Like this whole thing, screen time. You know, don't give your kids any more than an hour screen time. And again, that's just that well, as parents, that's just building uh building the pressure on top of what is already is a pressurized situation. So the way I, I would look at that and the way I would try and peel that back is I would say, do your best. Reduce the amount of screen time. Eat a little bit better. Do a little bit of exercise. Not, uh, not putting yourself under massive pressure that the kid, you know, screaming at a child because he's been on the iPad for 64 minutes as opposed to 60 or, you know, whatever it is. I mean, some days, like, I mean, some days, like, like, you look out in the window and you think the chances of us get, even getting outside today are slim. And if the child has a, 
another little bit of time on, on an iPad or whatever, I mean, is that really going to do any harm? Because there's plenty of days coming along where they won't look at it. So, I mean, that's the way I try and I try and look at things and I try and uh, think about things that can reduce the amount of harm that's being done and then perhaps moving on to the next level. But the process has to start somewhere. And uh, as I say, sometimes we put a huge amount of pressure on ourselves to do certain things or be be something that people want us to be, not necessarily what we want to be ourselves. I struggled with that for years. Eric, in 1989, and I sometimes talk about this when I'm talking to to younger people and and they they give me the blank stare, but I I don't know if you remember a guy called Eric Katna who played with with Leeds and then he went on to play with Man United very, very successfully. Absolutely. In 1989, he was the only gay I knew who wore his collar up. But there was one other gay who wore his collar up and he played GEA and it was me. And the reason why I wore my collar up to distract people away from, from the person that I was and to put an image out there that people would never think this gay is struggling, this gay has his uh, insecurities or whatever. And uh, when I talk to people who have played against you, they say, oh, you were a cocky, arrogant so-and-so when you played football against you. I was actually the opposite of that. I was an insecure little boy, but I wouldn't want anybody to see that because I seen that as a sign of weakness. And and that, in a nutshell, sort of sums my 16 years up. I don't even have to talk about, about gambling, where it brought me and all those things. That, in a nutshell, sums me up because for 16 years, I was living a lay, and the pressure of, of living that lay is, is, is unbelievable. And when you talk to people who are in recovery or who are... Who are uh, who are seeking help or getting help? Uh, they'll talk about the freedom, and and that's that was the biggest thing for me. It wasn't uh, the finances or anything like that. It was the freedom to try and be the person that I wanted to be. Then I, that might sound airy fairy, but that's exactly the way it was for me. The old masks—they come in all shapes and forms. Um, but you know, you, you talk about that time back in two thousand and five when you. You you made you went you started the whole process of of turning your life around, making that intervention, so to speak. And I'm just curious to know if if you were even aware at that time of the kind of services or the support that was out there, or did that just take you by surprise? I was very lucky in that uh, I had a sister and a brother-in-law who. Uh, had worked with somebody who had gone through Coonborough. And the first thing they did was they landed me at his door, put me in the car, drove me to Castle Derg in County Tyrone, and, uh, and I went in there and I talked to, I talked to this guy. And I, I couldn't believe it because you know why? He was normal. Mm. And I always, if you ask me, and this is hard to believe, but at 29 years of age, what my perception of somebody with an addiction was, I would tell you the gay who was laying on the park bench with a bottle of wine and a brown bag around it. And uh, to get to 29 and to think that that was my perception is, it sounds absolutely ridiculous, but it was. And then, as I say, I met this gay and he seemed, he seemed to me to be normal. And I sort of started to embrace it then because I, when I, when I, when I was first told that, you know, I'd need to go into treatment for, uh, for my addiction, I thought, nuthouse, 
that's the first thing that could that come into my head. And uh, I went in there and predominantly I was surrounded with gays who had alcohol problems. And I lay in a in a bed. I, I wasn't I, physically I was fine. Uh, these gays were all detoxing, they're all getting sick into into the uh, into buckets beside their beds. I had I was in my head, I, I thought I was better than these gays. And it was amazing over the over the first two weeks that we were there, these gays started to open up and started to talk. And I was still a little boy in the corner who couldn't talk and couldn't talk about what was going on. And it was only after those two weeks that I realized that, you know, my issues were deep and that I was going to have to start sharing those issues. And once I did, then again, just to go back to that, uh, that word of process, but, um, and it's a word that sometimes annoys me in regards sport process, but um, I had to embrace it as far as uh, my recovery was concerned. And how far now? Do you, do, well, I mean, it's going back now. Two thousand and five is when you 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 made that the change, made the, you know made the the decision to make a change. Um, that's going back sixteen years now. And then two thousand and seven, you came public with your story, and you're probably one of the first high profile people that I've heard speaking so openly and honestly and, and share you know your, your your true story about addiction and, and mental health um and i'm just wondering like how far do you think we have come since then like as a as a nation and um is it easier is it more accessible now for people to uh, access help uh, support services are we in better shape now than we were back then first of all as far as have things got better i definitely think that the stigma has been lifted a little bit I think because of some of the people who have come out and, and have talked about it, I think people are more attuned with the fact that uh, mental health is, is, is a major, major issue. Now, a lot of people accept mental health as a major issue, but don't accept that, that their mental health is being affected. But I think as far as access and services, uh, yes, that is still a, a, a you know a, a distinct possibility for most people. It's not out of reach for most people. It's not just for the rich. It's not you know uh, just for the people who are who are well off and and how or have um, the necessary um, contacts in order to get into treatment centres or or to access um, um, help in general. It's more for me uh, that that help is still there, but like it's very tough. Like at the start of the lockdown, you go back to last May or June, my phone never stopped for people who wanted to get into treatment because they thought this is the optimum opportunity for me to go because I'm going to be in lockdown. Nobody's going to miss me because for a lot of people, the biggest thing is I don't want anybody else to know. That's the biggest thing in the mind. And that can be a serious blockage as far as um, somebody not getting the help that they need. But those uh, the facilities are definitely there. I mean, we could be doing with a lot more beds as far as mental health is concerned, but there is an opportunity for people to get the, uh, to access the help, the help that they need. And the next part of that jigsaw is getting the proper help and making sure that you're staying posted um, to the person who is most capable of dealing with, uh, with your issues and probably a little bit more regulation around 
the counselling industry and ther- therapy in general in this country would be definitely helpful. But uh, the, the help is there and uh, if people want to access it. Yeah, that's very interesting. All right. And and makes so much sense too. Um, you know, you can see how how people would go and use these kind of, use the circumstances, the pandemic circumstances to go and seek help, whether that's residential care, therapy, and and kind of go on and on to kind of colleagues, peers, and fly under the radars, so to speak. But there's also the flip side of that too, isn't there, that I would find very concerning. And that's like, for the people who are in active addiction, um, the, the conditions, like the circumstances are potentially dangerous. Like, um, I just know from personal experiences that if I was still in active addiction, these conditions would have been right up my street for two inflict terrible damage and and pain amongst my you know to myself internally and you know i'm there's many people who are sitting at home now lost jobs you know addiction you know drinking alone maybe on devices mobile devices whatever it is losing loads of money gambling at the touch of a button and just sinking deeper and deeper into into that big black hole you know i'm just wondering how would you how would you have found these conditions like if you were still in active addiction, they're um, they're definitely potentially dangerous, aren't they? I would say I was very naive at the start of, of, of lockdown last March because I thought initially there's going to be a little bit of respite for families in particular who have somebody in active addiction. And I think there was an initial, uh, that was part of of the initial thinking and that was part of the initial evidence that people were getting a little bit of respite and the further the lockdown went on uh, just the messier it got Uh, as far as conditions if I had been still actively in addiction I talk to people about this all the time Uh, I'm very friendly with Niall McNamee and and a few other gays who are who are uh, who would be hanging in around the same sort of um, troubles as I had, but uh, one of the things we talk about constantly is what would we be like if we were gambling in the current uh, situation, and what would the repercussions be for the people around us for us gambling? And the same goes for drink or drugs. Uh, the same goes for porn. The same goes for for a lot of uh, of other things uh, that people get addicted to. But uh, I suppose if you think of the big those big three: the gambling, the drinking, drugs. Um, as far as the person who's addicted, uh, perfect circumstances um, for them to cause optimum uh, havoc, and and that doesn't obviously with lockdown. Uh, that's it's magnified in a family situation, if you know what I mean, because it's very visible for uh, partners or in particular kids. And uh, I suppose that's why uh, lockdown has been so damaging. And when you look at the figures as far as women's aid is concerned, uh, and you look at the um, the pressure that um, that's that's on child services and social workers all over the country you know that as I say that just has magnified it but 
as I say, I naively thought to begin with that uh, there would be a little bit of respite for families. You know, that has that has been the case in certain circumstances. In certain circumstances, it has but by and large, uh, it has been detri- detrimental to both the person in addiction and and the families around them. Yeah, there's just it's tough times, isn't it? Um, like there's so many people just really struggling, and there's families stretched to the limit, and sadly, there's going to be so many people falling through the cracks and. You just wish you could, you wish you could help them, you know, and and so like I suppose in a way you are, you know, by speaking out, sharing your real life experiences, sharing your story. I think that's going to help so many people. Um, you know, it's when I think back to 2015, I was into my first year as a student counselor therapist, and I remember sharing a panel with you and Richie Sadler. Uh, an RT sport panel, I think it was. And uh, I I remember thinking, I'm, here I am with two well-respected and experienced therapists that I could actually get so much advice and, you know, and tips maybe off these guys. But at the time, I still wasn't ready to talk about why I was studying counselling or psychotherapy. And there's always, if you tell somebody you're a counsellor or you're studying counseling or whatever they'll always ask you why what what did what made you go into that area or what uh what why did you go down that road there's always a backstory and i wasn't prepared to tell that story at that time so i didn't really say much but i remember actually one time listening to you and you said uh if ever you do more work as a therapist than if you're doing more work than the client there's something wrong what do you mean by that no, that is, and that you know, I, I still stick to that today because I suppose when somebody comes to you, and, and the, the vast majority of the work that I do, uh, Eric, is, is interventions. Okay, so so my full time job is with a foundation in England called Sport and Chance. So we do basically education pieces with uh, young footballers, rugby players, tennis players, darts. So we we cover a multitude of sports, but um, part of that will be one. To, as part of that, that will be part of that will be one-to-one counselling. And uh, but if I'm doing the initial intervention, and somebody comes to me and they say, "Listen, you know, I have problems," and I will move heaven and earth in order to make sure that that person gets the help that they need. If I'm continuing to chase that person and chase them and chase them and chase them to try and get them to follow up, then I'm doing more work than they are. And that then becomes an issue for me. That starts to affect me. And also it makes you realize that that person might not be ready. Not that they're not serious or not that they're not deserving of your help, but they might just not be ready just yet. And you have to, you have to leave that. Now, you leave it in a, in, a, in a safe way, but you have to leave it behind. And I learn that from a fellow therapist i learned that from somebody that i was doing supervision with that i had one particular client because he was he was local uh i had played football with him um and i wanted him to have what i had and i you know i i i felt that much from i really like this lad i i thought that he had so, so much to give outside of what was happening in his life. And I really, really wanted it for him. 
And I not only wanted it for him, but I wanted it for his family because his family really wanted it for him. And I was working behind the scenes all the time and I was, and I was spending so much time, time on it. And I spoke to my supervisor about it and he said to me, he said to me, you've got to just exactly what, I'm, what, what you said, but if I'm spending more time on it than he is, then, you know, that's just not right. And, and, and that was a big lesson for me to learn very, very early on and being a, uh, somebody who was out there to help people. So uh, I've, I've stuck with that. Um, it has stood me in good stead. It has kept me right. And if I'm right, then the people around me are right. And the people who come to see me, you know, are getting uh, looked after in the proper manner because if, if I let that stuff get on, uh, get in, in on me, uh, then there's issues for there's issues not just for me but for and for family but for the people who who are coming down the lane and the next person in the in the queue. Now that that person, funnily enough, um, did seek the help, but it took them another couple of years. But but I was out of the situation by that time, and then I was able to re-engage with that person and get him the help that he needed, and he was ready then. But I could have spent three years on it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm bouncing from, from, and that would have done me no good, or as I say, the people around me, uh, no good. There's great learning in that though, isn't there? Like, you know, there's plenty of help out there, but you, you can't do it for them. Like they have, they have to pick up the shovel themselves. Like they have to do the digging. They have to initiate the process. It's, it's all about action. Uh, but it's a great learning experience as 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 a therapist, but also for for the individual as well. Like I mean, sometimes I'm guilty of it myself. I think you know we can we wanting it too much for the client that we we can stop them from from taking control. A lot of people don't really know what a therapist or a counselor is when they're going to see them. A lot of people have this opinion that I go to a, a counselor and the counselor will fix me. And that's, that's, <laughs> and that's okay because yeah. when I first went to a counselor, that's what I thought he did. I'm laughing. I'm laughing because so did I. Uh, it's funny, you know, the, 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 the preconceptions that we can have. I mean, before I went in for therapy back in 2012, I foolishly believed that they were going to teach me how to drink sensibly. Before I walked into the room, I remember having the image, surely he'll have a couch, you know, that I can lay back on. Put my head down and let him and let him do the work. So yeah. you know that was my initial image. So and that yeah. is a lot of people's image of 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 counsel that somebody's gonna you know come around. You're gonna go around to somebody's house, sit with them for an hour, and they'll more or less fix you by the time that hour is up. So Oshin, you took on a new coaching role in 2020, and I mean anyone who I've spoken to over the last year, whether the people who started new jobs or students who've started college. You know, many of them haven't even seen their colleagues or fellow students in person yet, um, you know, in these strange times that we're living in. But you're after taking over the Inishkeen Grattans, their senior football team in Monaghan, and just wondering how that's going for you at the moment. Uh, look, it was a job that I went into very much with my eyes wide open. Uh, they're 10 minutes up the road, so it's, uh, I suppose it's, it's handy as far as, you know, travel, as travel commitments is concerned. That was a major thing, you know, taking over a club with... Uh, three small kids at home and trying to persuade the wife that it's a good idea. Um, but I suppose when I went in there, I, I knew some of the guys from uh, my time at DKIT. Um, 
And I had a f- good few of them uh, who had played for me, you know, at, at different levels in there. So when I went in there, I suppose it was it was nice to have that comfort that I that I knew a few guys. Um, they were keen for me to come in and, and sort of start afresh and 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 I suppose uh, change things up a little bit. And you know, when I say change things up, I suppose uh, you're trying to create a culture that maybe uh, hasn't been there before. And um, that's quite tricky. And, and actually, believe it or not, not just saying this because I'm on the call with you, but um, you said something to me. We did a we did a, an event in Cork uh, one time in CIT, and I you talked about uh, you know going ahead and trying to win uh, you know world championship, uh, and I had said I had said, when you finished talking, I'd said, "Geez, I'd love to get that belt and give it to you." And you said to me, but see, that's we, what you don't understand. That's, I don't want that. I want to work and earn that belt because I'll appreciate it more then. And that is something, honestly, Eric, which has stuck with me ever since. And that was one of the first things I talked to the gays about up there because if you're going to achieve anything, we're going to have to work particularly hard because of where we were coming from. And I would say that these gays are a work in progress. Uh, we made a semi-final last year. We beat after extra time. Uh, and I think there's there's bigger things ahead for them. And I think the most important thing for me was when I went in there, rather than trying to be a tactical genius, which I'm not, uh, was to try and get everybody sort of moving in the one direction. Or at least most of us moving in the one direction. And uh, and that, that's I think for me that's all that's one of the things that's always achievable, and and, and safe in the knowledge that I didn't think they were going to become any worse as footballers <laughs> uh, under me than than they, than they were, uh, and hopefully they would improve as a result of what we were doing. But just even imp- like when you think of the people who are coming into the dressing room, when you think of when I think of my kids who are eight and six and how different they are and, and how they've grown up in the same environment and all those sort of things um, and how different they are, I can only imagine the complex characters and different backgrounds and all that sort of things walking into a change room and just trying to make sure that all of those gays, first and foremost, are happy within themselves. And if they are, then you've got something to walk with. So so that's the basis of, of where I, I started with these gays. And, and I have to say they are brilliant gays to walk along with, you know. Yeah, it's it's very interesting actually to hear you say that, like to make sure everybody's happy in themselves, to make sure all players are happy in themselves. That kind of ro- reminds me of an article, well, an interview that I have read where you where you talked about holistically treating the players that you're working with, and like I I have quite a limited GAA experience. I would have played underage level, and from my experiences, the managers kind of method would have been a one size fits all you know big 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 instruction big team instruction or get out there lads and give it socks and you know whatever enjoy it or whatever but but your approach seems to be a little bit more specific to the players to the different personalities different backgrounds to have can you tell us a little bit more about that like a lot of people would read that and go that is so airy fairy that's never going to walk in the GA. We're too macho. We're too, you know, we're, uh, it's all about the parish, all about the cut and trust. It's all about, you know, how physically we can be and how fit we can be and all that sort of thing. But um, 
I just felt that when I talk about the holistic person, I, I talk about not somebody coming up into the field and you trying to hammer as much out of, you, out of them as you can physically uh, and just leaving it at that. And so holistically, the way I, what I meant by that was uh, just trying to make sure that, that those people who walked into that dressing room were as, in as good a place as they possibly could be as far as uh, what was going on mentally, what was going on in the background, whether it be, you know, uh, and whether, you know, you have to make, you have to have some sort of intervention in order to help them out in some way along the way. And that was all that that meant. Um, and, and, and I think for me personally, I feel that's something that has worked for me. Well, for what it's worth, I, I, I think it's a great approach. I mean, I would be of the same view. I believe that in order to perform to the highest level, you need to be highly functioning as a human being, like like physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. And and then when you are, you're only going to excel at whatever it is you do. And you're combining your years at the top level of football and from, as, from a player to a coach and your experiences as a, as a therapist and understanding people. And I think that is a fantastic cocktail that can only be so beneficial to any team in any industry. And I would hope that, you know, if there's any coaches, you know, employers, leaders listening to this interview, there's definitely something that they can take away from it. Um, Times are very hard at the moment. And I think we need to be able to connect more with people. I mean, there's no greater connection than the human connection. Oh, Shane, you've been so good with your time today. I could speak to you all day. You know, I have great admiration for, for the work that you do around mental health, addiction, and, you know, just sharing your own story. You know, I think it's brilliant. I think it's powerful, really. And, uh, you know, I want to wish you the very best with, uh, with the Inishkeen Grattans. Hopefully that's a successful partnership. And thanks for being my first guest on the Hooked on Health podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Take care. Thanks, Eric. Look after yourself. So that was Ushi McConville in conversation with Eric Donovan, a remarkable guy, Eric. And the one thing that I really kind of took away from the conversation you had was a metaphor he used, which I think is very apt here, which is when issues pop up in your life, they can be like a snowball. If you don't deal with them early, that snowball is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger as it rolls down the hill. But if you can stop it before it gets bigger, it's an easier problem to deal with. Yeah, it's a great analogy, isn't it? Like, and it's just that's what I talk about, you know, when I when when it you know when I speak with Oshin or when I meet him anytime, you know, I always come away a little bit more knowledgeable, a little bit more wiser, you know, and the simplicity of that will when you think about it, you know, if people can just even grasp that when there's an issue, deal with it. Because if you don't deal with it, if you suppress it, and I've been used to suppressing so much stuff in my life, you know, thinking they'll go away, but they never go away. By suppressing stuff doesn't mean they go away. You bury them, you put them, brush them under the carpet. But again, it builds up and, you know, that snowball effect going down the hill, it builds and builds and builds. And then suddenly it'll explode someday and it'll explode in a way that may not be health, the healthiest. You know, it could manifest in, you know, in drink or, or, or drugs or just maybe, you know, in a very unhealthy way in some um way shape or form so um yeah brilliant and like i said oshin is a he's a great 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 interviewer and uh any you know anytime i have a chat with him it's so easy great talker and uh makes so much sense doesn't he 
Yeah, he does. And like another point he brought up, Eric, which I thought was a very good one too, was that this has not been a bad time the last year or so to seek out help because there's so much stigma, particularly if someone has to go and do like he did, you know, when he went to Galway and went into the centre to get help at the time, everyone's aware that you're gone away for a little while and maybe people would notice that you're not a worker, you're not in the community. The last year has probably not been a bad time to reach out for help, given that, you know, people have been at home anyway. And also another point that he made that I thought was a very fair and valid one too, is that, you know, we've had a hard last year or so, and hopefully as we go into the summer, we'll move away from this horrific pandemic. But particularly like for anyone who has gambling addiction issues at the moment, like when you've got evenings that stretch out in front of you, sport might be one of the only few things that's actually on TV from a live point of view over the last while. And it's bombarded with gambling ads at the moment. I would imagine it's a particularly hard time for gambling addicts currently, or at least the way it's been over the last year or so, Eric. Yes, it's it's a big problem at the moment, Will. And, you know, Oshin is right. You know, like we do live in abnormal times now with the pandemic and people don't have to turn up physically to the office floor or whatever. So they can fly a little bit under the radar. And if they are struggling, they can maybe tip off and get some treatment and and might not be, it may not be noticed if they are, if they do have a problem with that. Um, so the conditions might be helpful in, in terms of that. But then there is the flip side of that. Yeah, there's been, you know, the only thing happening really over the last year, has been the sport, live sport. And for people who are struggling with addiction, that's, you know, it's really, really very difficult for them to get out, you know, to to, to kind of avoid that because it's in their face, in their face. Like a, the Irish Times had an article there about one particular uh, gambling company um, that uh, made 500 million last year, 500 million profit. It's just absolutely incredible. Um, and since Oshin came out and spoke about his story um, in 2005 and then released his book in 2007, that's what, well, 2005, so we're looking at 16 years ago, it's worsened tenfold. It's completely like, it's the amount of young kids presenting with gambling addictions into treatment centers. There's a backlog. They can't even get in through the doors. That's the other side of it as well. They can't even get in through the doors of rehab, the kids who want help, you know, um, but then if, I suppose if they want to bet, they can do that instantly at any time of the day, any minute, any second of the day on any type of device. But if they're looking for help, it's going to be join the back of the queue, kid. You know, it's 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 tough. That really is. Look, Osh McConville, our first guest here on Hooked on Health. Looking forward to week number two and episode number two, which you'll be able to pick up on the Go Loud app because this is a Go Loud original podcast. You'll also be able to uh, pick it up on any of your podcast streams in the normal places where you'd be subscribing. And hopefully uh, we can encourage you to do so over the coming weeks too. We're talking to another athlete next week, Eric, um, but it's a female athlete this time around. And tell us a little bit about the reason that you've picked a former star in Croke Park with Kildare uh, four years ago now at this point, but also someone with a much bigger and wider story than just what she did on the field that day when Kildare beat Roscommon in an All-Ireland final. Yeah, so next week's guest is Mary Hulgrain. She's just somebody who I think is, a, is an inspiration and she has an amazing story, powerful story. And I think it needs to be told, you know, because, you know, 
high achiever, very successful, huge profile as well, all-star winner, all-Ireland winner. And she's had her struggles. She's had, she's been through a very, very tough time in life, you know, and I think if she can share her story um, and we can give that the platform that it deserves, it'll definitely help so many more people who are faced with similar circumstances. That's Mary Hulgren, who is going to be guest number two on week two of the Hooked on Health podcast with Eric Donovan. Eric could be sitting down with Mary next week. Hopefully you can join us as well. And thanks a million for listening to episode number one. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app.